We currently live in a period of human history that the philosopher Toby Ord calls the precipice. He says that this is one of the most important time periods of all of human history. Now this might seem like an expression of unwarranted self-importance, and it's certainly true that humans have a tendency to engage in a kind of unjustified collective vanity. Right? I mean, we used to think that we occupied the center of the universe, but then we discovered that we don't even occupy the center of our own solar system. We used to believe that we were made in the image of God, but then Darwin came along with his theory of evolution and showed that intelligent beings can be molded over time from mere matter. So yes, we have a tendency to overestimate our own self-importance, but I don't think this tendency is manifesting itself when I say that we are currently living in one of the most important time periods of human history. In his book, the Precipice, Existential Risk, and the Future of Humanity, Toby Ord points out that in the 20th century, humans invented nuclear weapons. And in doing so, we developed the technological power to destroy ourselves. With great power, of course, comes great responsibility. But the fact of the matter is that our collective wisdom as a species has not kept pace with our collective technological power. I believe that we simply don't seem to be wise enough to ensure that we navigate these new technologies in a responsible manner, to ensure that we don't destroy ourselves with the tools of our own creation. We are infants from the perspective of philosophical wisdom, but from the perspective of technological power, we are gods. And I'm not just talking about nuclear weapons here. I'm talking about any and all technologies which are capable of causing mass destruction bioweapons and engineered viruses, artificial intelligence, military drones, weaponized nanotechnology, autonomous robots, 3D printed weapons, ransomware programs. It's astonishing, really, to behold the rate of technological innovation that has transpired in the world over the last century or so. And it's this gap between our exponentially increasing technological power and our lack of collective wisdom that has given rise to what Toby Ord calls the precipice. The precipice is a relatively short time period of human history, maybe a couple of centuries or so at most, that will determine the long-term future of our species. Essentially, either we will destroy ourselves and close the door to the future, or if we take the appropriate measures and are able to harness our technological power in the right way, we can create a future that produces more and more human flourishing, and that might even resemble something approximating a utopia. Now, obviously, this is an overly simplified way of framing the precipice, right? It's not a binary choice between human extinction and utopia. It's never that simple. We might not usher in the apocalypse as the result of our own foolhardiness, 
but we could certainly make a mess of things. Imagine, for example, that a global nuclear war occurs, and in the aftermath of this nuclear war, the world is just completely littered with deadly radiation. This kind of world might still be inhabited by a small number of humans, so our species might not be made completely extinct. But that's hardly a silver lining. Because in this scenario that I'm imagining, we're talking about a future which is characterized by a quasi-permanent state of dystopia. A radiation-littered world. The word that's often thrown around to describe things which threaten to destroy humanity is existential risk. Thus far, I've been discussing technological existential risks, but it's important to point out that there are also many natural existential risks, or anthropogenic existential risks. These are potential existential catastrophes which are produced by nature instead of produced by humans and our own technologies. Some natural existential risks include things like asteroid impacts, supervolcanic eruptions, natural pandemics, and stellar explosions. Natural existential risks like these exist during any time period of human history, and aren't unique to this time period in the way that many of the technological existential risks are. Toby Ord illustrates how we can appeal to the fossil record and to the 200,000-year history of humanity to assign boundary conditions on the probabilities of natural existential risks. So, if you think about it, humans have been around for 2,000 centuries, more or less. And the fact that we've survived this long suggests that the chances of us being destroyed by natural existential risks cannot be that high. Because if they were, we would have almost certainly not survived this long. And yet we're still here. So, Ord gives in his book what he admits are very rough estimates of the probabilities associated with different natural existential risks. Again, risks that have been around since the dawn of humanity. So, for example, Ord says that within the next century, he thinks that the chances of an asteroid destroying humanity is about one in a million. He says the chances of a supernova from a nearby star obliterating humanity about one in a billion. The chances of a supervolcanic explosion destroying us in the next century, about one in 10,000. And then finally, the chances of a naturally arising pandemic destroying us in the next century, about one in 10,000 as well. Again, these are very, very rough estimates, Ord admits, but they're meant to give you an idea of the right order of magnitude associated with these probabilities. Things get depressing when Ord gives his rough estimates for the probabilities associated with technological existential risks, which is, again, existential risks that didn't exist before a hundred years ago or so, but that have been brought into existence by our own technological innovations. Ord says that within the next hundred years, the chances of humans being destroyed by nuclear war is one in 1,000. The chances of us being destroyed by climate change, 1 in 10,000. The chances of us being destroyed by some kind of engineered pandemic, like a bioweapon, he says is 1 in 30. He says that chances, and this is really horrifying, the chances of us being destroyed by some kind of unaligned artificial intelligence is 1 in 10. 
And then he says that the chances of us being destroyed by other, what he calls, unforeseen technological risks is about 1 in 50. By other unforeseen technological risks, Ord means things like dystopian scenarios, nanotechnology, aliens, and what he calls, quote, our most radical scientific experiments, end quote. So he says, any one of those things uh, adds up to a 150 chance of us being destroyed in the next century. Altogether, combining all of these technological existential risks, Ord says that the chances of our species succumbing to one of these existential risks within the next century is about one in six. A one in six chance of us making it to the 22nd century, according to Ord. That's a dice roll. Now, people might quibble about the accuracy of these probabilities, but again, the basic point that Ord is making should be clear. We shouldn't fear nature as much as we should fear ourselves. We shouldn't fear natural existential risks as much as we should fear technological existential risks. Because it's our own technologies that have thrust us into an age of heightened existential risk. And Ord thinks that this age of heightened existential risk, this period of human history which he calls the precipice, cannot last that long. Ord says that the one in six chance of existential risk this century, given our current technological predicament, will likely only increase as our technologies become ever more powerful. And even if the probability stayed the same throughout the next couple of centuries, there's only so many centuries that we can survive with a one in six chance of dying. Again, one in six is a dice roll. And if you keep rolling the same die over and over again, eventually every number will come up. So, simply put, unstable civilizations cannot maintain stability indefinitely. Now, I should say that our civilization has been rendered unstable, not just by the powerful technologies that we've created, but also by the fact that an increasing number of individuals can get their hands on these technologies, or can easily get access to information which allows them to construct these technologies. Right? We, we live in the information age. The internet has democratized information. Now, this, of course, has obvious upsides. It's allowed people to instantaneously gain access to a wealth of knowledge. The internet has allowed people to instantaneously gain access to a variety of different educational tools. Right? So there are many upsides. But the democratization of information also has downsides. Namely, it allows for epistemically and ethically harmful information to more easily spread and pollute the minds of the populace. Information, for example, related to conspiracy theories, fake news, propaganda campaigns, all of this information can be more easily spread at scale via the internet. And most importantly for the purposes of this episode, what the philosopher Vincent Moeller calls dangerous information can more easily spread now via the internet. Now, dangerous information can be understood as any information the use of which could produce disastrous consequences in the world. So I'm talking about, for example, information about how to manufacture a deadly virus or information about how to create a destructive bomb. I'm not sure if it's still the case, but I recall reading that at some point 
Information concerning how to sequence the smallpox virus was available online. So this is the kind of information that I'm talking about when I'm talking about dangerous information. Again, information that's specifically related to dangerous technologies that can cause mass destruction. Another example of dangerous online information concerns blueprints for 3D printing weapons. On May 3rd, 2013, the design plans for creating the first 3D printed gun were published online for free by the company Defense Distributed. The publication of these blueprints was accompanied by a YouTube video of Cody Wilson, who is the founder of Defense Distributed, shooting the first ever 3D printed gun. Now, in response to this YouTube video and the blueprints being distributed online, the U.S. government accused Cody Wilson of violating what's called the Export Control Act, and the government demanded that Defense Distributed immediately take down the blueprints for the first 3D printed gun. While Wilson and his company complied with this request, the blueprints were apparently downloaded more than 10,000 times within a five-day span, and apparently the blueprints can still be accessed on certain websites like the Pirate Bay. As they say, once it's on the internet, it's there forever. As 3D printers become more sophisticated and less costly, the threat of 3D printed weapons could increase exponentially. Now, there's an important discussion to have surrounding the Second Amendment when it comes to 3D printed weapons. And I'm not going to have that discussion here, but I just offer that example as another example of dangerous online information or potentially dangerous online information. Again, the blueprints for 3D printed weapons. Now, the basic worry here surrounding dangerous online information can be encapsulated by what Moeller calls technique propagation. So Moeller says, quote, There's a, there is a threat specific to information technology that Bruce Schneier calls technique propagation. It is not a great problem if some specialists learn how, say, to cheat coin-operated phone booths. But if someone wrote a program that is downloadable to all Java-enabled mobile phones and allows users to call for free, a significant problem would arise. If you can download programs to hack sites or to construct viruses easily, then the hurdle for these kinds of things are lowered very significantly. End quote. So in other words, the idea is that the internet makes it easier and easier for a larger number of people to get their hands on dangerous information that they can then use to cause mass destruction. And the truth is that within any population of millions of people, there will inevitably be at least a few individuals or groups who are hell-bent on causing mass destruction. These individuals might be radical political ideologues, or maybe they're just psychopaths who want to watch the world burn. Take, for example, the 1995 Tokyo subway terrorist attack. This was a terrorist attack perpetrated by the death cult known as Aleph, or previously called Um Shinrikyo. Members of this death cult wanted to, I believe, destroy the human race and usher in the apocalypse. And in an effort to do so, they released deadly sarin gas on three Tokyo subway lines on March 20th, 1995. Now, obviously, they were unsuccessful in ushering in the apocalypse, but their terrorist attack killed 13 people 
and injured over 5,000 others. Dangerous individuals and groups like this exist in our world, unfortunately. And we're not going to change that fact because we cannot directly engineer human nature, nor, nor would we want to. So my concern, again, is that dangerous individuals and terrorist groups like this will be able to more easily cause mass destruction as we continue to create more powerful technologies. And these technologies are increasingly made available to people that may not necessarily be that tech savvy or possess that much technological know-how. Now, you might call me a techno-pessimist, but I'm constantly shocked that the world is operating as smoothly as it is, given our current collective technological predicament. I'm constantly shocked that there aren't more instances of bioterrorism, that there aren't more bombs being detonated in the middle of cities, that there aren't more cyber attacks which function to destabilize societies. Now, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of violence and chaos in the world, obviously, but civilization is still standing, at least for the meantime. Now, I can definitely see how one might think that these concerns that I'm articulating about technological existential risk are overblown. Right? One might say, Cody, hasn't violence declined throughout the centuries? Why are you so worried about future violence given that the present is exponentially less violent than the past? There is something to this thought. The Harvard psychologist and linguist Steven Pinker, for example, has recently written a landmark book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Pinker, in the book, draws on a mountain of empirical data, which suggests that human violence across a variety of domains has drastically declined over time. I won't get into it here, but Pinker identifies six main causes of this decline in human violence. Causes like cosmopolitanism and state monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Now ultimately, Pinker argues that in all likelihood, we are currently living in the most peaceful time in human history. So perhaps it will come as a surprise, but I actually wholeheartedly agree with Pinker's argument. I just don't think that Pinker's thesis about the decline in violence negates any of the concerns that I've articulated here in this episode thus far. I think that it can simultaneously be true that we are currently living in an age of heightened existential risk, and that we are also currently living in the most peaceful age of human history. One way of putting it is that there currently exists a large amount of potential energy for technological disaster and violence, but this potential energy has for the most part not yet been converted into kinetic energy. Uh, right? I'm using a physics analogy here. So this is a good thing. right? We should obviously do everything in our power to ensure that we never experience the kinetic energy associated with global technological disaster. Right? We want, it, we want to keep it as mere potential energy. <laughs> and Pinker himself acknowledges that there is no guarantee that this decline in violence will continue. So the question then is, what can we do to ensure that the decline in violence does continue? What can we do to competently navigate the precipice, to lower the heightened level of existential risk that we're currently facing, to ensure that we don't destroy the future? 
That's the question. Now, when it comes to the specific issue of dangerous online information, one thing that we might do is consider internet censorship. I'm generally against internet censorship, especially when it comes to censoring political speech. But when we're talking specifically about dangerous online information of the sort that I've described here, I think that censorship is the appropriate measure. But even if we censor dangerous online information, we still have to contend with the wisdom-power gap that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. In other words, we still have to grapple with the fact that our collective technological power seems to be exponentially increasing. And this exponential increase in power renders our world fundamentally unstable. What do we do with this fact? Should we just stop making technological innovations? Should we grind technological progress to a halt in an effort to preemptively stop us from destroying ourselves? Of course not. I mean, first, it's completely infeasible to suggest that we could stop all technological progress, right? I mean, the train of technological innovation has left the station, and there's really no bringing it back. And even if we could stop the process of technological innovation, this isn't something that we'd want to do. We want to create better and better technologies in order to solve global problems and in order to improve the quality of life. More than anything else, it is the development of revolutionary technologies throughout history that has led to a significant increase in the material standards of living throughout the world. Think about things like the invention of the wheel, the printing press, the steam engine, indoor plumbing and refrigerators, antibiotics and vaccines, the electric battery and electric light bulbs, transistors and computers. All of these things have drastically changed the world in ways that we by and large find desirable. And the advent of new and emerging technologies promise to further change the world and to make life even better than it is now. Just to take a few examples of some of these emerging technologies that can be used for good. We want to harness the power of artificial intelligence to create better cybersecurity systems. And we want to use AI to transform the field of healthcare. Right? We, specifically, we want to use AI to hasten the development of new drugs and diagnosis practices and the advent of personalized medicine. We want to develop more sophisticated brain-computer interface devices to help people with severe central nervous system disabilities like locked-in syndrome, to help them regain motor control and linguistic functioning. We want to create more sophisticated and less costly 3D printers, which we can use to 3D print things like personalized prosthetics, like artificial kidneys. We can use 3D printers to 3D print clothing or food, or even 3D print small houses. I was reading an article recently about a 3D printing company that's trying to 3D print small houses as a way to potentially solve the homeless problem. Right? So there are many different positive applications of 3D printing, despite the fact that there is the concern surrounding 3D weapons that I mentioned earlier. And just as there's concerns about biotechnology and nanotechnology, these are two different technologies which certainly pose existential risks, we also want to use nanotechnology 
and biotechnology to help cure various diseases and to potentially even prolong human life. Right? I could keep going because the number of beneficial applications that emerging technologies possess is functionally infinite. And all of this means that, again, we want to continue to improve our technology. We want technological innovation to plow forward, full steam ahead. So if we're not going to stop technological progress, then what measures can we take as a society to ensure that we navigate existing and emerging technologies in a responsible manner? Again, to ensure that we don't destroy the future. The answer, I think, might have to come in the form of government regulation and surveillance. Now, for all the libertarians out there who are scoffing at this proposal of government regulation and surveillance, just hear me out for a second. Even the most libertarian-minded person presumably wouldn't advocate for a state of total freedom. By a state of total freedom, I mean a state in which there exists no laws whatsoever. Right? A state where you are the most free, but you are the least safe because there are no laws that are stopping other people from infringing upon your personhood. A state of total freedom might exist in the context of war. It's something that certainly existed prior to the establishment of civilization when we lived in a state of nature. Right? A state of nature is, uh, technically speaking, a state of total freedom. But I think it's generally agreed upon that a state of total freedom isn't a desirable state for humans to live in. Right? I mean, we created civilization and governments and judicial systems for a reason. So while we value freedom and personal liberty, we acknowledge that there are justifiable limits to this freedom. Now, on the other end of this spectrum is what you might call a state of total safety. Right? One end of this spectrum, a state of total freedom, the other end, a state of total safety. A state of total safety is where you're the most safe, but you're the least free. So think about for example, the state of solitary confinement within a maximum security prison. A person in solitary confinement is maximally safe in the sense that they're not in any danger, right? I mean, there's a prison guard standing right outside their door. The walls of their room might be cushioned so they can't cause any harm to themselves. This person in solitary confinement, they're insulated from the evils of the outside world, but they lack any semblance of freedom. On a societal scale, a state of total safety would take the form of what I call a maximum security society. There might be different kinds of maximum security societies. Some might be more authoritarian than others, for example. But the basic idea here is that a maximum security society is one in which the civil liberties and personal freedoms of civilians have largely been stripped away for the sake of public safety. A maximum security society would possess extensive surveillance mechanisms and sweeping regulatory laws in order to ensure social order and to maintain peace. The idea of a maximum security society certainly betrays the values of individual freedom that we hold dear here in the West. Perhaps the country that is currently closest to resembling a maximum security society is the People's Republic of China. China possesses wide-scale surveillance systems which monitor civilians and assign them social credit ratings. The Chinese Communist Party has also implemented pretty severe internet censorship in the form 
of what's often called the Great Firewall of China. Now, there might, of course, be different reasons for establishing what I'm calling a maximum security society. Some reasons more nefarious than others, right? I mean, if you're creating a maximum security society in order to solidify power and in order to brainwash the populace into accepting a particular political ideology, then you're a totalitarian monster. But, and I'm circling back to the main point here, what if you are effectively forced to create a maximum security society? Because the alternative is synonymous with the downfall of civilization. What if the level of technological existential risk becomes so high that for the sake of public safety, for the sake of the maintenance of civilization, we need to implement wide-scale surveillance systems and overly stringent regulations? What if we have no choice but to implement a maximum security society? The philosopher Nick Bostrom, who's one of my favorite contemporary philosophers, considers this possibility in a recent paper entitled The Vulnerable World Hypothesis. In this paper, Bostrom articulates a lot of the same concerns that I've conveyed here regarding heightened technological existential risk. Like Toby Ord, Bostrom also believes that our increasing technological power has rendered the world fundamentally unstable, or as he puts it, fundamentally vulnerable. Bostrom says that the vulnerable world hypothesis denotes the idea that, quote, if technological development continues, then a set of capabilities will at some point be attained that make the devastation of civilization extremely likely, end quote. So again, this is essentially just the idea that I've been discussing this entire episode. Now things get interesting when you consider what Bostrom's proposed remedy is to this state of heightened existential risk. Bostrom says that in order to safeguard civilization against seemingly inevitable technological destruction, we might need to implement some kind of maximum security society. Before describing exactly what kind of societal vision Bostrom has in mind here, I think it's worth briefly stating the thought experiment that he uses to motivate the vulnerable world hypothesis. So this is called the urn of invention thought experiment. Bostrom imagines that since the dawn of time, humanity has been feverishly picking balls out of what he calls the urn of invention. So these balls represent different technological developments. And Bostrom says that there are three different kinds of balls that humanity might pick out of the urn of invention. There are white ball technologies, gray ball technologies, and black ball technologies. A white ball technology is a technology that has wholly positive benefits for humanity with no discernible downsides. So an example of a white ball technology might be the invention of indoor plumbing. Right? The invention of indoor plumbing, as far as I know, had wholly good effects for humanity and greatly increased the material standards of living for our species. A gray ball technology is a technology that can be used to produce both good effects and bad effects. So it, it's a mixed bag, in other words. An example of a gray ball technology that Bostrom provides is the invention of splitting the atom, or the discovery of splitting the atom. He says that splitting the atom is a gray ball technology because it has both positive and negative aspects to it. The positive aspect is that splitting the atom led to the discovery of controlled nuclear fission, which in turn led to a new means of usable energy. 
But the negative aspect is that splitting the atom led to the development of the atomic bomb. So a black ball technology is, quote, a technology that invariably or by default destroys the civilization that invents it. So again, this is a technology that, if invented and released out into the world, would almost certainly be used by somebody to cause civilizational collapse. Now, when Bostrom's talking about black ball technologies, he's talking about technologies which threaten humanity at large, and not necessarily a particular civilization within humanity at a particular time. All right, so Bostrom acknowledges that there are certain technological developments that might be regarded as black ball events from the perspective of certain civilizations. So, for example, the European inventions that enabled transoceanic travel could be regarded as black ball events from the perspective of the indigenous people of the Americas, who would see their population largely wiped out by the invasion of Europeans into their land. But Bostrom's talking about black ball technologies on a larger scale. He's talking about technologies which, again, threaten humanity at large. And Bostrom says that thus far we've essentially gotten lucky that we haven't picked a black ball technology out of the urn of invention, right? He says that humanity's just been feverishly picking balls out of the urn of invention since the dawn of time. We've been engaging in technological progress and technological innovation full steam ahead without any second thoughts. And we've just gotten lucky thus far that most of our, the balls that we picked out have been either white balls or gray balls. One thought experiment that Bostrom uses to illustrate how lucky we are that we haven't yet picked a black ball technology out of the urn of invention is the thought experiment which he calls the easy nukes thought experiment. So Bostrom says, or he imagines, what if creating a nuclear weapon did not require the resources of the state, but could instead be manufactured by any individual with access to Google? Right? It just so happens that in the universe that we live in, Making an atomic weapon requires several kilograms of plutonium or highly enriched uranium, both of which are very difficult and expensive to produce. Right? Typically, it requires the resources of a state in order to manufacture a nuclear weapon. But imagine that the universe was constituted by different laws of nature, such that one could trigger a nuclear explosion with just a sheet of glass, some metal, and maybe a battery, right? This seems like a possible universe. And if this were the case, this were the universe that we lived in, then the invention of nukes would almost certainly have been a black ball technology if it was that easy to trigger a nuclear explosion. Now, it might still be the case that nuclear weapons are a black ball technology and we just aren't aware of it yet because we haven't destroyed ourselves with them yet. That's entirely possible. But again, the basic point that Bostrom's making here is that we've gotten lucky, and if we keep making technological progress, eventually we will pull a black ball technology out of the urn of invention. So the question is, what do we do when and if that occurs? And again, Bostrom's suggestion is that the proper remedy might involve implementing a kind of maximum security society a society characterized by wide-scale surveillance, a society characterized by global governance, 
right? Because if a black ball technology were invented, this would be a kind of global coordination problem because all of humanity would be threatened. And this is also a society that would be characterized by extensive preventive policing measures. So let me read a quote from Bostrom in which he articulates the vision for the kind of maximum security society that he's imagining. So he says, quote, in this future, he says, in this future society, quote, everybody is fitted with a freedom tag, a sequent to the more limited wearable surveillance devices familiar today, such as the ankle tag used in several countries as a prison alternative, the body cams worn by many police forces, the pocket trackers and wristbands that some parents use to keep track of their children, and of course, the ubiquitous cell phone. The freedom tag is a slightly more advanced appliance, worn around the neck and bedecked with multi-directional cameras and microphones. Encrypted video and audio is continuously uploaded from the device to the cloud and machine interpreted in real time. AI algorithms classify the activities of the wearer, his hand movements, nearby objects, and other situational cues. If suspicious activity is detected, the feed is relayed to one of several Patriot monitoring stations. These are vast office complexes staffed 24-7. There, a freedom officer reviews the video feed on several screens and listens to the audio and headphones. The freedom officer then determines an appropriate action, such as contacting the tag wearer via an audio link to ask for explanations or to request a better view. The freedom officer can also dispatch an inspector, a police rapid response unit, or a drone to investigate further. In the small fraction of cases where the wearer refuses to desist from the prescribed activity after repeated warnings, an arrest may be made or other suitable penalties imposed. Citizens are not permitted to remove the freedom tag, except while they are in environments that have been outfitted with adequate external sensors. The system offers fairly sophisticated privacy protections, such as automated blurring of intimate body parts, and it provides the option to redact identity-revealing data, such as faces and name tags, and release it only when the information is needed for an investigation. Both AI-enabled mechanisms and human oversight closely monitor all the actions of the freedom officers to prevent abuse. End quote. So, that's a fairly detailed description of the kind of maximum security society Bostrom is imagining, the kind of society that might be necessary in order to prevent civilizational collapse in the event of a black ball technology being pulled out of the urn of invention. And as he says, it's a society which is characterized by wide-scale surveillance mechanisms in the form of what he calls a freedom tag. And look, I don't think anyone wants to implement this kind of maximum security society, especially not me. I value individual freedom as much as anybody. I'm just considering this possibility as an intellectual exercise. I'm just trying to think through what might be required on a societal level in order to stave off impending technological doom. I want us as a species to make it through the precipice in one piece. And doing so might require implementing measures which betray some of our fundamental values. Or maybe not. Maybe there's a less totalitarian way to combat the reality of a black ball technology being thrust into our world. And if there is, we should obviously pursue that remedy. Right? We should try to be as least totalitarian as possible while simultaneously preserving public safety.
Now, maybe the concerns about heightened existential risk that I've expressed in this episode are overblown. Maybe you think that I'm just a techno-pessimist. I'm overly technologically pessimist. I truly hope that this is the case. I hope that I'm wrong and that Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord are wrong about these concerns. But I don't think that they are. To end, it might be helpful to zoom out and view what I've been talking about on a cosmic scale. So to do this, consider what's called the Fermi Paradox. The Fermi Paradox, named after the Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi, refers to the apparent contradiction between the fact that we have every reason to believe that extraterrestrial life exists, and yet we have no definitive evidence for the existence of extraterrestrial life. Let me break it down for you. The universe is estimated to be around 13.8 billion years old, and is estimated to contain billions of stars. We have every reason to believe that many of these stars are surrounded by Earth-like planets. In fact, we've already discovered thousands of exoplanets, some of which lie in the so-called Goldilocks zone, which is the region or the range of orbits around a star that is conducive to planetary life. Right? We've discovered exoplanets which lie in this Goldilocks zone already, and we have every reason to believe that there are many other planets like this in the universe. So given these facts, given the fact that the universe has existed for so long and likely contains a plethora of planets that are conducive to life, it seems as if extraterrestrial civilizations capable of interstellar travel should have already evolved and developed. And yet, we have no evidence for extraterrestrial civilizations. Hence the question, where are the aliens? This is the essence of the Fermi Paradox. Again, probabilistically speaking, we should have encountered hyper-sophisticated extraterrestrial life by now, but we haven't. That's the apparent contradiction. Now, there are many proposed solutions to the Fermi Paradox. Some have suggested that extraterrestrial life might just happen to be extremely rare, right? Maybe we are alone in the universe. Others have suggested that while aliens might not be rare, the universe might just be so big and so expansive that the aliens just haven't reached us yet, right? Maybe they, there are aliens that are capable of interstellar travel, but they just haven't reached us yet because the universe is so big and the Earth is just a tiny pebble in the expansive ocean that is space, right? That's possible. It's also possible that the aliens have reached us. So they do exist. They are capable of interstellar travel. And they have reached us and are aware of our existence, but they just haven't disclosed themselves to us yet. Right? Maybe there's some intergalactic federation and we're not mature enough as a species yet to be inducted into this intergalactic federation. Right? All of these are potential solutions to the Fermi paradox. But the solution that's relevant to this episode, the solution that I want to leave you with, is the solution which concedes that extraterrestrial civilizations exist, but which claims that such civilizations inevitably destroy themselves before they develop the capacities for interstellar travel. Right? The idea here is that perhaps there's some sort of cosmic law of civilizations, according to which when civilizations reach a certain level of technological maturity, they inevitably self-destruct 
because they lack the wisdom to competently handle their own technological power. Right? I truly hope that this solution to the Fermi paradox is not correct. <laughs> because if it is correct, then that suggests that we will not make it through the precipice. Then it suggests that we will destroy the future and that we will succumb to some kind of technological existential risks. Right? If there's some cosmic law of civilizations, according to which civilizations self-destruct when they reach a certain level of technological maturity, that suggests that the vulnerability of our modern world on Earth will be laid bare, perhaps by the detonation of nuclear weapons, or acts of bioterrorism, or unaligned artificial intelligence, or any other technological disaster that you can conjure up in imagination. For the sake of humanity, I hope that aliens capable of interstellar travel already exist. I hope that other life forms have already made it to the stars and explored the universe. Because if they have, then maybe we can too. Maybe we can make it through the precipice and create a glorious future. I think that's all I wanted to say. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.